quite important because you might get the idea that because certain things are done first, that this means that they are more important. Oh, this is not true in the Kabbalist uh, view of things. Um, the, the general idea about the interaction of the male and the female aspects is that they work in this fashion and that they are reciprocal and that they are eternally working this way. So, uh, as far as when it started, we can more or less forget about that and rather concentrate on the balance between these two aspects. Obviously, this represents the male aspect, the logos, and uh, what this means is that the envisioning power, which we all possess, is termed the masculine aspect in ourselves by the Kabbalists. This means that uh, there is something in the unity of ourselves which has, for practical, descriptive purposes, a sort of masculine feeling and aspect about it. And that's what this particular key represents. In other words, it doesn't make any difference whether you are male or female. You have within yourself this aspect, and uh, it is the power to envision, and it is derived directly from the Ancient of Days, and of course the Emperor represents the Ancient of Days, and is part of our heritage from this uh, uh, great, you might say, uh, will. We, uh, of course, most of us, like myself, were raised in the notion of uh, that God is a he, but uh, the Tarot and the Kabbalah teach that God is, is both a he and a she at once, which is uh, also a rather Hinduish idea. And this is exemplified in the last key of the Tarot by the fact that the, the figure is an androgynous figure. But for analytical purposes, it's very useful to make a separation of the powers so that we can see quite clearly how they work in ourselves. Now, in the Kabbalah, this particular key represents the constituting intelligence. And what this, in a practical sense, what this means is that nothing that is uh, exists without having been constituted. In the first place, if you like, it was constituted by God, the life power, or whatever you want to call it. But since we are, you might say, the sons and daughters of this same power, we have the same ability. And uh, when we reach a certain point of maturity, our teachers tell us, that we are supposed to reconstitute ourselves in a very special way which represents our true self. And this means a conscious act on our part. And so we are asked to write a constitution for ourselves on a piece of paper with ink. And uh, being mindful, of course, that we can amend our constitution but the value of this exercise is that it helps us to, to sort of clarify what our objectives are. And uh, in this way, uh, give some point to our lives. And as we persist in this business of giving some point to our lives, we find that 
we begin a process of accretion which builds from all of nature and from all of the outside uh, elements into ourselves which express what's in our constitution. So uh, seriously we are told to sit down and, and uh, write our personal constitution. Now the advantage of this is that sometime or other we have to be you might say spiritually responsible for ourselves and for our lives. Now, up to a certain point we are told that we are in a certain dispensation which is called mercy and that means that no matter how stupid we are or how uh, childish we are uh, we're taken care of but when we when we grow up and when we become an adult spiritually speaking we no longer have to lean upon you might say the divine mercy but we can begin to think about ourselves in a very special way which is to think in terms of what we're supposed to do with ourselves with our our life our energies and the whole bit you see so you might say well you know the whole world's against me and uh, I have to make this compromise and that compromise and the other compromise that's all true <laughs> excuse me up to us up to a certain point but we have to start somewhere and our teachers tell us the best place to start is with a piece of paper and a pen and just as the fathers of the United States sat down and wrote a constitution which was ridiculous at the time because they didn't even have a country by the same token uh, we should do the same thing and sit down before we have you might say developed into the marvelous creature that we shall be and write down the story of what we're going to be that's that's the idea it might be considered an act of faith by some uh, but if you're fairly well versed in the philosophy of the Kabbalah you can see that there's a lot of reason for this uh, this is uh, moving away from uh, being uh, a chip on the sea or uh, a chip in the stream or whatever you want to call yourself and moving in the direction of anchoring yourself in spiritual terms to something which is near and dear and important to you. Uh, as I say, if you persist in this, you'll find that uh, help will come from unexpected quarters. That's the only testimonial that I can give you, but uh, I'm perfectly willing to give you that. Uh, this is more or less practical advice as far as this key is concerned. The key, of course, stands for reason, and uh, there's uh, the divine reason which uh, passeth all understanding, meaning that we don't know what God is up to, and I'm sure I don't know what God is up to. Uh, so uh, the best thing that we can do in a situation like that is to uh, try and apply a little reason to our own particular universe which of course is the universe that is ourselves in the fond hope that if we get that in order uh, possibly uh, some special good would come out of it uh, setting one's own house in order this is the number four is the number of order in connection with this key and also in the Kabbalah, aside from being the mercy seat, it means order. Uh, 
But setting one's house in order uh, is an essential feature of liberation, really. And uh, what this means in practical terms, again, is the elimination of things that you don't want in your house. In other words, if you live in a house with all the doors open and uh, the cats, dogs, mice, goats, sheep, chickens, and everything else come into your house and march through it, uh, defecating along the way, you might say, uh, this is very much like what happens to practically everybody who is living in America and uh, listens to the media. In other words, uh, your, your life is uh, being eternally, uh, uh, you, you might say, invaded by a whole lot of things that don't belong in your life at all. So you really, the first thing that you have to do is sort of uh, shut the door and, uh, and settle down to the serious business of making a kind of laboratory, as they would say in England, out of your life. And that means, of course, closing closing the doors, but you have windows and so on and so forth. This is a window, and you're allowed to look out the window and see what's going on, but you don't necessarily buy it all, if you, if you know what I mean. So, uh, as you can see, my emphasis tonight is on what I call the very practical matters that this he deals with. Uh, never forget the basic dogma of the Kabbalah that reality uh, exists. That's number one. And two, that we, as parts of this reality, have nothing in ourselves uh, except, uh, you might say, powers and faculties that reflect the basic reality. This is, uh, you might say, the foundation stone of all the exercises and everything else that go on in the Tarot and the Kabbalah. There is no difference between you and reality, or vice versa. And there is no separation of powers. Every power that you have is derived uh, all your faculties represent powers in reality. They're not something either special or personal or anything like that. And it's only when you muster uh, all your powers and faculties together, and uh, uh, this is what you do when you write your constitution, that they become available to you in a practical way so that you can actually, you might say, manipulate them in the direction of your own heart's desire, and your own heart's desire is, is just about the most important thing in the Kabbalah, because the Kabbalah believes very, very deeply in uh, your inner character and uh, in your innermost desires, and wants to see those desires fulfilled. It doesn't want to see you necessarily buy a new LTD or uh, some piece of foolishness that comes from the outside world, but it is most concerned about what you have in yourself and that this be expressed as fully as possible. And that's, uh, that's the whole business about constituting oneself. One other thought about this, and that is that if you don't constitute yourself, obviously you're living on somebody else's constitution. In other words, you're living under it, and this is quite true. 
uh, it, it's a case of one or the other, either your own or someone else's. And uh, the difference as far as what will happen to you in terms of events is immense. That's all I can tell you. In other words, if you are determined to live under your own spiritual constitution, you have one kind of life. And if you are willing to live under the other fellow's constitution, you have another kind of life. And it's up to you, of course, to make the choice. Well, Jason, all week I've been uh, fixing up my house. Now I know why. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yes. Uh, I found out after I wrote out my first one, and then ever since, as you grow, your constitution goes through quite a few, has few amendments. Oh yeah. Well, uh, I mentioned that uh, it's it's something that you must amend. You know, I mean, you uh, you just have to build that into the constitution. You know, the fact that it's uh, very much that way. But I think you'll find that uh, some of the basic feelings that you have about your constitution won't really change much. The details, which are the amendments, will change. But as far as your you might say, you know, the basic note around which you want to build your life, that uh, I think you'll find will stay pretty much the same in the beginning as it will be at the end. Mine has for 12 years. Pardon me? For 12 years mine has been the same, please. Well, uh, there's a testimonial from uh, one of our members, so <laughs> that's hammering in the nail. <laughs> it's all right to rewrite it if you want to. Oh, you can rewrite the whole thing. Uh, you see, the important part is that it's yours. That's uh, that's essential. It, it can't be something that's dictated from the outside. That is that's a, uh, that's a hopeless situation. The the Kabbalah has as you know, a very, um, how shall I put it, ennobling view of what we are. And uh, it's based on a lot of very, very hard work uh, over probably thousands of years to come upon this definition of man. And uh, man is such a great guy, basically, that the capitalists are, are trying to mine this out of himself. In other words, they want to get this inner guy, who is a terrific guy, out so that uh, he comes into outer expression. That's that's one of their major objectives. But philosophically, of course, they have many reasons for believing in the greatness of man and also the goodness of man. I mean, you know, they think man is essentially good and not bad. Uh, but he gets a little confused with all the outside pressures, and so the goodness gets, uh, we'll say, obscured. And uh, 
you know what it says in the Emerald Tablet, therefore let all obscurity flee before thee. And that means uh, just what it says. <laughs> One of the most exciting things is that after you get busy with your housekeeping, and heaven's knows mine isn't all done, is that uh, instead of having to hunt things all the time, they come to you. People and books and all kinds of things come right up. And well, that's because you're a magnet. Uh, once that you once you write your constitution, this is a positive pole, and then uh, life begins to uh, with this positive pole in yourself. It's very easy for life to bring you what you need. You see, it's it's just the opposite of wanting. We'll say a thing. If you want a thing, well, there's a certain way to get it, and uh, you have to go about that in a special way. But if you want something that represents yourself in terms of expression, that is not a thing. So that becomes a positive pole, and then all the things that are necessary to bring it into expression uh, come by way of accretion. as you say, without any effort on your part. I think one very important thing that uh, I found exciting and all, and then oh, well along in the lessons this is spoken of specifically, and that is that uh, using all of the judgment of which you're capable, but people will start coming to you for help out of the strangest places and for all kinds of reasons. and the lesson said something about uh, remember that you can be helped, I don't know how they worded it, but the idea is by somebody just one grade or one little bit wiser than you are can help you and you can help someone who doesn't know just quite as much as you do and don't be modest and say oh I'm not a teacher yet you know and I, I can't well, help. Uh, for example I have a, a young lad who helps me in the shop and, and uh, the problem was to tie up a, a case of goods with a piece of rope so that, uh, you know, it would stay put. Well, he'd never faced this problem in his life. So uh, even though he's a very talented young man, uh, the idea of how you're going to get any tension on the rope and hold it there, you only got two hands and blah, 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 uh, was a serious problem for him. He felt, you know, sort of flubby about the whole thing. Well, it took about, I'd say, about two minutes or three minutes to show him how you do it, and the minute he knew how to do it, well, that was the end of the problem. He was, you know, uh, fully initiated in how to tie up a case of goods. There was no more to it. He and might this be is, able to run a computer, but he couldn't tie them up properly. Well, enough. that's exactly what it amounted to. It was it was to get tension on a rope and and how do you uh, how do you keep the tension when you try to tie the knot and it was something he'd never come up against in his life and this is uh, there's a whole lot of that in the tarot you know and in the Kabbalah too there there are so many knotty problems that without some guidance you could spend a whole lifetime trying to figure out one puzzle but uh, you do have help you know, there's a lot of instruction which you, depending on what your particular misery is, why uh, you can get it uh, worked out fairly well with uh, good advice.
I used to think this was kind of fanciful, but I know now that it isn't, that if somebody comes to you with a, a big problem and you're trying to help them, and if you're doing your best and not letting ego get in the way or anything, you'll find the words come right out of your mouth. I sure. mean, you don't know where you got them, but you just say, well, that's fine for you. I think maybe I do so-and-so. You think, gee, I'm not thinking that. Well, you couldn't think there. of it, you know. If you it's if you there. try to think of it, then you're a psychiatrist, and but it's there. and uh, the minute you get into that bag, uh, you're you're like uh, you're in the engineer bag, and of course, uh, when they they'll tell you is if you want to be an inventor, don't be an engineer. What is the difference you're speaking of? The difference of what? Between those two processes. Well, one is that you have a structured approach to everything an analytical structured approach which means that you have everything classified uh, in your mind and that you make a classification someone presents you with a problem and you classify it as being uh, this that or the other thing and uh, then you uh, I, I, uh, then you uh, prescribe uh, the well-known remedy for whatever it is that's bothering you, the bothering the patient. You know, I mean that's. You dream how, of a snake. There's just one answer. Well, yeah. There's one. There's sure. no other answer. Sure. Well, it couldn't, it couldn't be the simple business that you were bitten by one and damn no. near died. Uh, that would be too. That would be too easy. You know, it's it's got to be uh, strictly symbolism and all the rest of it. Strict symbolism. So, uh, so. Uh, Oh, incidentally, you'll notice that uh, in the in the tarot, in the sequence of the tarot, the the reasoning faculty comes first. Now, mind you, uh, this reason that's spoken of here is not ordinary reason. Uh, it's not our reason, but it's the divine reason that's represented by the emperor, and that is uh, a sort of a horse of a different color from ordinary reason, which. Uh, We'll say works on premises which are always, in in our case, are always faulty premises. We don't have any any true premises to work on. We just have educated guesses. In other words, our, just for example, our morality, for example, is a good thing to work on. Uh, morality, as you know works in a very reasonable way, but uh, it has a basis, and the premises that are in the basis of the morality are all important, and they could be dead wrong. We've mentioned earlier that uh, if you're a headhunter, for instance, uh, there's nothing uh, more agreeable than to go out and knock some guy's head off and, and have the brains for dinner. That's considered uh, de rigueur if you're a Headhunter, but we don't look at it that way, and so the morality—the morality is very different, but it's very reasonable for a headhunter to go out and get as many heads as he can, just as it's very reasonable for us to go out and get as many bucks as we can, or whatever we're after. You know, it's a reasonable thing, but the premises are shaky in both instances, and the—the the only, uh, as far as what's going on is concerned, it, it, it would require a knowledge of reality, which nobody has, only approximations, to have really true basic premises on which to, to reason. And uh, we don't have anything like that. We just have educated guesses.
In other words, the more data we have, the more of an educated guess we can have. But then we, uh, as you know, we also um, are very good at uh, finding out how things work. We have a very good pragmatic approach. And the, the Tarot and the Kabbalah represents a very pragmatic approach, you might say, in spiritual matters. People have discovered a long time ago that certain things work, uh, whether they're true or they're not true. And the philosophy of the Kabbalah uh, works very well, whether it's true or not. And therefore, it's, uh, it's a matter of plain horse sense to make use of it. But we mustn't ever, for one moment, think that we understand reality, because the capitalists would be the first to tell us we don't. Reality, in terms of the Kabbalah, is the end of or, and by definition, it is the thing that nobody knows anything about. In this respect, it's just like the Tao of Lao Tzu. If you can describe it or talk about it or real, be a real smart guy about it, you don't know what the hell you're talking about because uh, the thing you're talking about is non-existent as far as you're concerned. It's there, but it defies description, and that's the way reality is. So we have, you know, a very pragmatic approach a lot of the approach of the wise, as we call them, our teachers, is, uh, you might say, a kind of a psychological pragmatism. And as far as spiritual matters are concerned, there's a very, very sound philosophical basis for their views. But they don't make any positive statements about something uh, that is un literally unknowable. It's beautifully expressed in uh, in the light of Asia, Sir Edwin Arnold's long gone to his rest and his reward. He says in the first, I guess the first paragraph, sink not the string of thought into the unfathomable. That's very good advice. But there's, but there's so much that we can know that's useful, that that's okay. We can, we can, we can work on that. Yeah. Don't you suppose that the average modern man, of course, all of us would be too wise to do this, but the average person just can't bear to admit there's anything that he can't understand. He just won't take that leap. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I guess this is the reason that we have millions of people clinging to, we'll say, exoteric religious dogmas, because they're very comforting. It's very nice to have. It's, it's very nice to go into some place and have ten thousand, or a hundred thousand, or a million, or a half a billion people tell you all the same thing. It's very reassuring, even if it's a lot of baloney. It's still very reassuring. <laughs> but this has never been uh, the path of the thinker. I mean, they've never followed this particular way of looking at things. There's so many obvious things that are all around us that support, we'll say, the wise view. Even though we don't understand all of it, there's so much that supports the wise view. If we attend to it, uh, we don't need anything else in our present condition. And of course, 
this was exactly the stand of Lao Tzu. He said, you know, if you just use your head and use your eyes, ears, and everything else that you have, uh, you will, uh, just by observation, you will come to certain conclusions which are valid about what's going on. Now, this doesn't mean that you know all the answers in the universe, but it, it tells you, as far as your life is concerned, what is going on and tells you what you need to know. One thing that's very important in this philosophy is that anything that is a construction has to be created. And the creator is, in the tarot, is the emperor in the sense that the emperor envisions what is going to happen. If you don't have anything going, nothing happens. This is why the Constitution is important. If you don't write one for yourself, you haven't any. And if you haven't any, you don't have any center. And if you don't have any center, you're not going to get any accretion of anything that's going to um, uh, build up your area of life expression. You're going to be an average. And as an average, you take what the averages deliver. And it will be cyclic and come see, come saw, and uh, the way any, the, any way it goes. Yeah. And... Uh, this, to me, is important. It's very important. You remember that uh, our whole idea, the only reason that uh, we go on and on and on, is to make explicit the difficult path of making yourself explicit. That's what's going on. In other words, to explain yourself to yourself is, is just about the most difficult thing there is, and that's why we're here. And uh, as our Hindu friends tell us, 99% of that is finding out what you aren't. And one of the strongest steps in in discriminating between what you are and what you are not is to try and constitute yourself consciously as to what you are which immediately eliminates a whole lot of what you're not as you can see and then if it doesn't work out quite right well do it again do it over but at least you you come to the point where you say, well, I'm not that. That isn't me. You want to be that, George? You go right ahead. No harm done. That's your life. Go ahead. But this is my house. This is my temple. This is my garden. This is where I live. And in this place where I am, this is the rule. And of course, uh, the idea of ruling is, is extremely important. We've said many times here that you will either rule or be ruled, one or the other.
You have no choice. Now, this doesn't mean that uh, you should never uh, work for money or any such asinine view as that. That's not what's involved. But I'm talking about your inner life and your, your you know, what really matters as far as oneself is concerned is that you always are able to save a certain part of yourself that it may not be sacred to anybody else, but it's surely sacred as far as you're concerned. And this is, as we say, this is your inner temple. This is where uh, it all goes on. And in uh, alchemy, of course, it was called the laboratory. In other words, the, the laboratory of the self. And this was something that had to be kept strictly private because it's that kind of thing. Yeah, the last of the four great commands is, and be silent, they said that was the toughest. Yeah. I think it often is, especially when you get the first exciting results. You know, most people seem to want to rush out. I think it's interesting, too, the, the three uh, horizontally thereafter, creative imagination goes to work, and you put it in order, then you achieve enough order so you can begin to hear the higher Well, it's it's also true that uh, if you never get to the point of reason, you'll never get to the point of intuition. And this has to do with oneself. In other words, if you are unreasonable about yourself, you won't be capable of receiving any intuitions. So it goes to hearing Dalit as well as. Well, I mean, it, you know, say Marsh, it starts out first the magician, the high priestess, the empress, the emperor, and then the intuition comes afterward. And uh, one of the. They don't make too many positive statements about what goes on in, uh, in this business, but they do say that the intuition never contradicts reason. It, it isn't that sort of thing. But they're not talking about ordinary reason. They're talking about the inner reasons for things. In other words, it never, it never upsets your inner reasons. Uh, true intuition never does that. It always harmonizes and advances uh, your life situation. It's just the same thing is said about meditation, that if you succeed in meditation, you always, you not only feel better, uh, but you know a little bit more than you knew before. In other words, it exalts you. If it does not exalt you, if it doesn't add anything to your stock of information, well, then you haven't succeeded. It's, it's that simple. And then intuition is the same way. And of course, it's intuition is largely in the field of guidance and uh, the guidance is the thing that uh, more or less directs you from from the point of it, intuition which is the higher event directs you further on the path of awareness and enlightenment and so on in other words it says you know well perhaps you should go this way instead of this way or that way or this way or you know god knows what way but it tells you specifically yes Jim. Uh, I'm interested in what you have to say about Immaculate Conception. 
Uh, I've been reading some articles about scientists uh, working with, uh, I think it was frogs and some other lower animals, and like they were pricking the eggs with a pin, and the thing would start to grow. And, well, I never uh, got bothered about it. I mean, uh, and, and they've even. I, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure glad that my babies. girlfriend never got the immaculate conception. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, I would have had to marry her right then and there. But anyway, uh, a, a part of Genesis happens all the time in nature. And uh, if you if you read about the uh, praying mantis, they're very they're very remarkable in this respect. You know, they they can have babies just any time of the day or night apparently. It's not, uh, in, uh, look at it this way, if you start out with the, with the basic, um, oh simple cells that reproduce themselves, there's no problem. I mean they just, they just do it all the time out of themselves. They don't need any help from anybody. Once you get that in your head it's easy to understand anything. This is, I'm, I'm speaking, you know, biologically. The cells that, that grow by sprouting, well, okay, where's George? He isn't there. And yet they're reproducing. And, and in the higher life forms, uh, in the insect world, as I say, there are plenty of instances where uh, uh, George is on the moon or somewhere else, or, you know, he's playing Bach or God knows what, but uh, he doesn't have any part of the process. This article that I was reading, scientists, I guess, are having some great fun, it seemed like, trying to uh, get it's an egg time. To, to mature without uh, the help of the male. And they got quite a ways, I mean, it would go so many days, and then it would go haywire. And it seems to me that has something to do with this, like the, the order, or the, yeah, the order of the, uh, the emperor. It might be helpful to you, as long as you're kicking around this area, to remember that uh, to think of nature as one being that uh, produces uh, males and females and everything else at will. I mean, this, I'm only thinking, I'm, you know, I'm just trying to give you a kind of a concept that might be helpful. And when you realize that the whole uh, paraphernalia of reproduction is, is in this one order of nature, and that there are all these exceptions and all these things that go on, then it kind of loosens up your uh, loosens up your mind as far as what nature is capable of. In other words, I would never, in the, my wildest dreams, I would never say, "Well, that's impossible." Uh, even though uh, a scientist doesn't like the idea of immaculate conception, I wouldn't kick it out because uh, I have a very broad view of what nature is capable of, and. Uh, uh, what? I beg your pardon? I just have something to throw in though. I'm sure it'll excite your curiosity though. And I work in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. A couple of weeks ago I learned it's a fairly common condition to have a type of a cyst that develops from, uh, from the ovid starting to divide by itself, which literally turns into a, a, a mass that normally is a, a mass of hair and teeth. 
uh, you go into the dictionary of monsters and you'll see that uh, the same thing happens with monsters that you get all sorts of variations and mix-ups and 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 ghastly ghoulies in the monsters that are born continuously uh, continually in uh, human experience they're all I mean a real mix-up I don't know whether you've gotten into that area or not, but that's been going on for a long time. It's well, it's well documented. That's Shiva, isn't it? Well, not particularly. No, I don't think so. I, don't think, so. I think it's uh, uh, it's it's obvious that particularly on this level, there are loads of accidents. You know, I mean, plenty of. Them. This is the level of the accidents right here. They happen all the time. Jason, this uh, Aries, the area ruled by Aries, is uh, said to be the day center of the Scorpio force. That's the sun. This is, this, look, you know and I know that the only force that's involved in uh, everything to do with ordinary energy is solar force. You know, the everyday energies that we use. Then there are subtle forces which come from the cosmos and they're something else again. And they're extremely complex and have never been charted at all. We know that they're there, but they are not something that you can say, well, on Friday this is going to happen or that's going to happen because we're talking about the relationship between the universe and ourselves and it has a very very important relationship but we don't know what it is we have no way of, of gauging it except through our intuition in other words Lao Tzu said you know you can wet your finger and hold it up in the wind and tell which way the wind is blowing and if this is the what you do with all the unknowable factors that there are in the universe you have to sort of hold up your finger and say which way is the wind blowing because there's no other way. There's just this simple uh, feeling about it. That's all. But, uh, you know, as far as saying I'm going to calculate it or uh, the moon is in Aries or whatever the hell uh, else happens to be going on, that is certainly true in certain areas. But as far as the cosmos is concerned, it obviously is, there's a whole lot more to it, you know. Positive factors can be. No, but intuitively, we're told by our wise friends that we can at least tell which way the wind is blowing. In other words, this is the guidance system that we have built in ourselves, which has nothing to do with calculation. That's the intuitive faculty. We know whether to turn right or left, or, you know, just what do we do next? Well, is there actually, uh, physiologically or otherwise, a force which does center itself in different areas of the body, determining whether, whether you're uh, asleep or awake? From the, the coccyx area to the, to the head area? Well, they say so. They say that, uh, you know, you, you know it as well as I do. They say that the self-conscious area is the ego area. This is uh, on the tree. It's in the center of beauty. And if you go beyond that, you have a nightmare.
probably up for beyond the crown makes Theta look like a real busy intersection on Market Street by comparison. It's I'd like just, to go back for a minute to just to refer to Bob the Hierophant momentarily. I've always found that it was a very useful idea for my for me to think of him as the liaison officer. It's not a one way thing once you get in communication. So I like to think of him as that. I find it helpful. Well, I was just going to say that um, uh, in the in the color of this particular key, the orange area refers to what is technically called superconsciousness, and that is uh, a little bit different from self-consciousness in that uh, it includes both the self-conscious and the subconscious areas. And so uh, the vision of the the vision of the emperor uh, is one that uh, includes the entire area of the subconscious and also the self-conscious area at the same time. You'll notice that in the basic tableau, he's looking at the empress, which is logical and reasonable. Uh, but uh, you also remember that she represents what we call the subconscious or unconscious area, and of course his his vision penetrates all as far as uh, the definition goes. He sees the whole works. He's looking at her cool sister over on the next card too. Well, he's sure he's looking in that direction. He's also looking at the magician and. So on and the whole thing. Yes, yes, Denny. Uh, I have some more technical questions, but I would like to know. Uh, uh, I read in a case book. He said, "Well, an adept tries to imitate nature." Okay, so I figured, well, we can imitate these cards, and like the emperor is doing something, and if you look at him, he's doing something. So that's obvious. And next question comes. What's he doing? And like that much. Okay. They said that uh, the three and the four were the signs with a sign of sulfur. Okay. In card number twelve, it's reversed. In card number twenty-one, it's turned back up again. What does this mean in terms of sulfur? Like in related to card number. 10? Well, <laughs> actually. Even though it seems that the emperor isn't doing anything, he's he's actually creating uh, what is going to be. That's his that's his function, and the way he does this is by envisioning it. And uh, he he's not going to create any create anything without a medium of expression. And of course, the the empress represents the substantial element in this. So as far as you know, what is he doing? This is this is what he's doing. As far as key twelve is concerned, which is of course related to the emperor, it's um, it's a somewhat different emphasis because uh, key twelve doesn't represent 
the ancient of days as the emperor does. The emperor represents what you might call God, but key 12 doesn't represent that. The key 12 represents uh, a certain condition of man who uh, has achieved, we'll say, um, well, uh, advanced or achieved a certain condition of consciousness which is not something that the emperor has to work on. It isn't his problem. It's man's problem to be what's represented by key 12. The emperor doesn't have any problems. He's the, you know, I mean, in terms of the absolute view of the capitalist, he doesn't have any problems at all. He just does what he has to do, and he has all the necessary equipment to do it, and that's all there is to it. But as far as you and I are concerned, key 12 represents, you might say, a kind, uh, it's not exactly an achievement, it really isn't in that, but it's a kind of a stage in our spiritual evo evolution where we reach a certain state of consciousness, which is a sort of an unfolding thing rather than, uh, you know, climbing the mountain or uh, uh, getting uh, an A-plus or something like this. It isn't quite that sort of thing, you know, it's, well, it's, it's a little bit different. I, the reason I ask that is because it, I was looking at the emperor, he looks through the circle, and I said, well, okay, card number 10, there's the circle, and his vision might be going through Well, it isn't just a circle, though, I mean. Well, no, but in, in one sense, is not he looking through <coughs> the circle, which is, he's focusing, his vision is being focused through, he's holding up an instrument, like he's lining up. And that circle in card number ten says rotation, so that you. Now you I think this is true. You know that he's he's uh, sort of like the uh, camera obscura. He's looking through the pinpoint, and <coughs> what comes out on the other side is his creation. Right. Okay. Now, if in card number ten, manifestation goes through the cycles, and one of the elements of the cycle is sulfur. And he has the sign of sulfur, and it's reversed in card number twelve and card number. Now wait a minute, though. Don't don't take this sign of sulfur uh, in too hard a sense, because it's only a quality. It's not a it's not a thing. It's uh, it's a quality, like the the difference between hard and soft, or wet and dry. It's not it's not a thing. In other words, it's it's uh, again like a state rather than uh, a thing. You you have to understand that uh, uh, the qualities are all you might say mathematically conceived as being. In other words, if you think a quality, well then that's how you make it. But it's not. It isn't a thing. It's, it's more artistic than that. In other words, uh, you, you know, you say, well, I think I'll add a little more yellow or a little more green to give it a certain quality, but uh, it's, it's not like a, a brick or anything of that sort. And it's not to be approached in this, in this hard way. You see, the, the reason I emphasize this is that the nature of substance is very subtle. It's not like a brick either. And it can assume any quality as well as giving the appearance of substance in the ordinary sense of hardness, we'll say, which we think of as being very substantial, you know, like the morality of uh, the Mitchells uh, 
and the and the Nixons and so on, very substantial, and Agnew and so on, very substantial morality. Well, uh, the the substance that's spoken of in the High Priestess is much more fluid than this, and can, we'll say, create a chimera uh, rather than just uh, you know a brick or something like that. So that if you want a certain feeling, which comes from a certain quality, uh, you again created and there it is see and the the three gunas which are represented by the sulfur and the salt and the mercury you see are qualities they're not things and, and they're not you, you 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 don't in other words don't think of them in other words when you think of light and darkness uh, don't think of them in terms of uh, hardness, but rather in terms of scale, perhaps, like right and left or up and down or something like this, but related in the sense that uh, the essence of one is the essence of the other, and that just you're moving along the scale. In other words, if you go this way, you have one quality, and if you go this way, you have another quality. In other words, if you if you uh, have the buzzing of a bee, you have one quality. If you have the beating of a drum, you have another. But it's the same, the same mechanism that produces it. And it's just a matter of, we'll say, degree or whatever, or what you have in mind, and so on and so forth. In other words, the whole thing responds to what you have in mind. See? And uh, this, this fluidity of everything it's very, very important to keep in mind at all times because that's the way it is, according to our teachers. In other words, it's a very, very fluid situation. In spite of what people say every day, it's extremely fluid. Well, in the first place, the, the hanged man, he's, he's hanging loose if anybody ever did. Well, he's in water, too. Don't forget that. But he that's is water. hanging loose. Oh, yeah. 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 Also, I think it's interesting to think of him as a pendulum, that he's been doing this, maybe, but he's finally come to rest. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's in there, too. But it, it, to get the idea of the, the way the emperor's vision works, we have to think in terms of the completely fluidic response to what he has in mind. And this is the only explanation for what happens when we start to constitute ourselves, because insofar as we do, we find that by, in a very magical way, things begin to, by accretion, they begin to come out of the solution of everything that there is all around. Because the, the substance, which is represented by the high priestess in the tarot, contains everything in solution. The whole bit. And insofar as we set up a positive fold, we begin to we begin to pull these things out. In other words, if, if a person contemplated or meditated on the symbol of sulfur, he would eventually come to understand what that quality was. Which is the quality of passion. That's what it is. And of course on the tree it's it's very much related to Hokma and and the Mars 
the fifth center on the tree, which is the Mars center. They're very closely connected. Yes, Sylvan? What's the quality of salt? Well, uh, this uh, is the Tamasic quality, which is, you might say, the ultimate in rigidity and resistance. Uh, are they Nick Desmond? Uh, he's not here. He's not here today. Thank you. He's uh, he's probably at home. Or somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Try somewhere. That just doesn't Well, the in, in other words, the the ultimate uh, aspect of of the Tamasic quality, which is salt, as far as the symbolism, they're the same thing, is resistance. This is the Saturn quality. Well, why did Jesus say you are the salt of the earth? Well, uh, maybe he liked to eat, I don't know. That's, you know, if you're thinking of salt in terms of a condiment, it means one thing, but when you take it, you're talking about alchemy and and what salt represents in that is something else again, and, and it's it's like Saturn. Uh, he just certainly didn't mean that you were the Saturn of the Earth, unless he meant that you were rock hard as far as the doctrine was concerned. But it, uh, you know, there's the um, immovable object and the irresistible force, and the immovable object is the salt. And the irresistible force, the irresistible force, is the sulfur. And the only thing that can uh, harmonize these two is the sattvic element, which is the mercury. It says, "Listen, you guys, when are you going to wake up to what's going on? You know, you know, when are you going to stop playing these games?" That's the intelligence uh, between these two. Uh, also intelligent forces that express themselves in this specific way. Everything to do with structure, resistance, permanence, stability, that's salt. Well, stability, yes. But stability to me seems something a little bit different from uh, resistance. Well, uh, stability is the ability to resist change, isn't it? Well, not necessarily. <laughs> well, I know. Uh, <laughs> stability is, uh, to me, is the ability to hold to the cars, you know. Yeah, and how do you hold to the cars? If you're sailing a boat, you hang on for dear life because all the forces yeah. All the forces are trying to knock the tiller out of your hand. And if you couldn't resist all those forces, they'd actually pull it right out of your hand. Oh, yes. Now I see. That's now, the point. Now got yeah. Well, I'm a sailor, so I, I know about that. That came straight out of my sailing experience. I've done a little of that, too. Yeah, well, that's the way it works. You get the tiller knocked out of you, that's bad. Yeah. I was just noticing that uh, you could say those three gunas are present in the high priestess, then. the two pillars and the priestess herself between them. Yeah, well, she, she corresponds, of course, to the Mercury 
element in, in the three. Yeah. He's in that pillar, which is the Mercury pillar is the central one, and the other two, of course. The uh, again, don't misunderstand that there is an essential feature in stability and resistance and so on. This is absolutely essential for any life expression at all. But we're simply describing the nature of the beast so that there isn't any misunderstanding about it. But I mean, if you don't have any medium of expression, you don't have any expression. And when you talk about a medium, you're talking about resistance. Right. So, you know. It's that clay again. Yeah, sure. Anything. Could you say that if you get those three things uh, in suspense in, in water or liquid, then you've got the mixing bowl of the elements and you've got a kasha. That's right. We're right back to the top of the tree again. That's right. But as far as the occult view is concerned, let's say occult or Kabbalistic or interview, uh, because of the the outer aspect of things is not important the inner aspect is all important because it's where the energy is is on the inside and the energy works directly on the whole affair uh, this is where the astral light and everything else comes in in other words from the outside this is you know going to be here forever and yet we know perfectly well it isn't going to be here forever and a lot of things that we think are very permanent about the outside the uh, we'll say attitudes of people and this and that and the other thing they can be changed they can be changed in the twinkling of an eye and it, depending on how we are so will the changes be that uh, in the outside world this is what is important as far as uh, you might say how does it work you know what it says in the Bible, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. But he can also soften the heart of Pharaoh, just like that. In certain ways in thinking of time, granite doesn't take too long to decompose. Oh, no. No, I, I don't mean any... No. I'm not trying to give you any uh, piece of foolishness. I'm talking about in a world where... Uh, events are fluid anyway you may expect that there are plenty of opportunities for change as far as oneself is concerned you see and these if you play the game according to the rules that are laid down by the wise you don't have to have anybody uh, give you any testimonial about it you'll find out for yourself that it works you don't need any help from anybody else. If you try it, it'll, you'll see that it, it works. And it works, as it says, God works in mysterious ways. Well, that's a very sweet way of saying that life works in mysterious ways. It does. Yeah. I was thinking of the emperor, and he seems pretty salty to me. Uh, Kind of thinking about him, he's sort of four square there, you know. By sitting on the cube, which yeah. is salt. <laughs> but uh, so I was trying to to reconcile this with uh, with his sulfury, uh, fiery nature, and well, I was thinking well, maybe he's like the navigator. Opposite, don't yeah. opposites attract each other? Yes, I mean, generally, yes. and uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the you know, uh, 
The symbol for sulfur, of course, is um, a triangle and a cross. And these are very interesting elements because, uh, um, as far as the, the tarot is concerned, the triangle is Daleth, and the cross is the cross that's on the uh, breast of the high priestess. And it's also a very common way for expressing the number four, which happens to be his number. But uh, there it is. I mean, you know. You can... It's a family affair, isn't it? Oh, definitely. I was wondering if um, maybe he's like being uh, kind of predominantly sulfur kind He's like the navigator, he sets the course, but he's, he's not holding the tiller. Someone else is holding the tiller. I was wondering who the, uh, the uh, salty character would be. That well, that would be the Empress. She's the, she's the of course, she's the resistance. She's okay. the salty sea, and she is... <laughs> you have to understand that the... the you have to the understand that the Empress rules the universe. That's, that's basic. She's the god of the universe, and and what the universe is going to do at any given moment is is something that the emperor concerns himself about. But as far as being the lord of the universe is concerned, that's the empress right then and there. This is uh, this is a matter of definition. This is not a matter of uh, you know hearsay or anything else. That's the way it's defined, and the reason for that is that she controls uh, all constructions. And uh, and everything that has a mechanical, knowable aspect, she controls this. And he produces them. Well, he, 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 he envisions what, in other words, it, whatever construction he has in his mind is what uh, the Empress brings about. In this particular instance, it's the universe. But she's capable of producing the universe. Yes? Well, it because the statement says that the, all is mind and the universe is mental. Oh, it's a hermetic saying that in the book of Kabbalah. Yeah. So the all is mind and the universe is mental. Well, this is only one statement in the Kabbalah. Well, yeah, but I mean, would that mean then... That, that has to do with the empress and has to do uh, right. with the high priestess. She's mental. Yes, she she's is. She is the No, she's not a mental creation. She is mind itself. Well, doesn't that statement say if, if the all the, the all is mind and the universe is mental? No, wait a minute. Now you've changed it a little bit. Did I? Yeah. You what said you started by saying the universe is mental or something like well, that. Well, in the, the book Kabbalion, they say there's a statement that says the all is mind and the universe is mental. Well, uh, this is okay, providing that you understand that in the Kabbalistic philosophy, Within mind itself, there yeah. is uh, a, an inspiring element, which in the tree would be Hochman. Yeah, well, as I take the statement, they're saying that this, they define mind as that no thing, it's the Ain Safar. No, that, that isn't what mind is. Well, that's how they're defining it. Well, that, that's not so, because uh, the Buddhists have a better way of describing it. They describe the Ain Safar in a better way, they say that's the void, which is nothing. If, in other words, when they talk about mind, they're talking about something. But when you talk about the void, you're talking about nothing. And their void is like uh, the ensafor of the capitalists. You have to understand, get it right in your head, that if you 
crossed the line of trying to discuss the ensaf or or the void, you're already in 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 trouble. You're in deep trouble. Because uh, see, the void is a non-dimensional thing. You get a taste of this in the in the Kabbalah and in the in the tarot. It doesn't have anything to do with dimensions. It doesn't have anything to do with time and space and anything that you can think of. It isn't that sort of thing at all. And once you start to get into this notion, uh, you can see that, you know, mind is something else because it has extension and it has time, space, and the whole bit. But we keep trying to uh, name this unable thing. We keep trying to put labels on it, it seems like. Yeah, but keep, that's a waste of going. time. It is a waste of time. Of course it's a waste of time. Because uh, once you understand what it is, well, then you know perfectly well that it wouldn't be what you're talking about in a roundabout way if you if you attempted to stick something on it. It, it loses its character, and that you don't want to do. You don't want it to lose its character. You don't want the void to be something else, and you don't want the ensafor to be something else from what it is. But uh, I'm still very fascinated in the way it works. You, you should be. <laughs> yeah. You should be. But the thing itself, you don't want to. Uh, no. It thing. It's not a thing. Matter. I know. No, it I. Doesn't matter I, though of not working. It just is. It's yeah. You know, it's very important to, to, uh, to understand that a thing. Well, not a thing, but that we'll say a non-conceptual something or other can exist in a very fundamental way and and can be left out of everything that is conceptual and still be an important consideration. It's, it's very much like if you could think of space uh, with nothing in it, it's rather like that. No edges. No nothing. Uh, it's somewhat like that. Or if you prefer to think of it as a point without any dimensions or anything of that sort, that's okay too. But uh, the space notion is useful as long as you don't ascribe any qualities to it. It's just something that's that's there, and it's the matrix. But it's not mind, as far as uh, these definitions are concerned, because mind is a going concern where you can talk a lot about it. And it's particularly close to man, because by definition, man is mind. And once he understands, once man understands his mind, he's, he's gone a long way. Because the mechanisms are important, and you know, and uh, it's it's very useful to know something about your mind. The Buddhists are very adept at this particular department. So, if you're interested in what mind is, the Buddhists are very helpful in telling you what it is and what its limitations are, and also what the dangers of the mind are, the very real dangers in the mind, because it's such a, a potent thing that uh, the mind is, is creative. In the Kabbalah, it's called the creative world, 
and uh, it, you know if you produce something yourself and you're not aware of it and you do it unconsciously you say you mean I did that that I did it like I, I, I made my life you know that the, the way it is now I did it oh, this is impossible but the Buddhists say it's not only probable and possible but that's the way it is and if you want to if you've made it well you can unmake it if you find that you're bound by what you've created because you made it you can un unmake it and that's what liberation is all about it's sure not a popular line at a cocktail party though oh no, no don't no, try no. it no 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 it's not for a cocktail party it's for very serious students that's what it's for no but i mean you tell somebody that they've made their life just don't well they don't even know what you're talking about yes Mike. once again i'm confused i'm always confused but anyway about this making of your life now it's still true however much of my life i am responsible for or that I have made, that I am living under the karma, or whatever you want to call it, of the race to which I belong. And is it not equally true that I still must get up tomorrow and uh, go through whatever manipulations are necessary? I mean, I don't understand when you say that I make my own life. I mean, I know that I make my own life. I know now I look, make my happiness. Now, now, my just own. relax a minute. Now, just take four deep breaths and just relax. Okay? Let's go back, say, 50,000 years. Okay? And let's say that you are a noble, hairy hunter trying to get your three square meals a day. And you, you don't have any concern in your mind about race, karma, or anything else. But you, you have to eat in order to sustain life, right? Yes. Okay. So your karma at that point is that in order to sustain your life, you have to eat. Now this is a general karma of all living beings, right? Well, it hasn't changed any. And this is not only the karma of people, but it's the karma of all living creatures that they have to eat. Now, this is a special kind of karma. This is, in other words, this is, you might say, the law of the gods or God who designed living beings and how they should function in the first place. Right? So, uh, all that's involved as an intelligent being is that you recognize that this is the general karma of all living beings. It isn't especially human karma. It's the karma of life itself. Okay? And insofar as you have to eat, uh, you do something about it. Now, it can be thrice removed from, we'll say, growing potatoes or hunting the bear or catching the fish or anything else but by a series of exchanges you are still involved in this basic pattern of life which is general and not specific it doesn't uh, necessarily deal with mankind 
In other words, you're sustaining your life in your body. And that, as far as your basic karma is concerned, that's the only karma that you have, that you should sustain the life in your body. If you're going to live on this plane, you have to keep your body alive. Outside of that, outside of that, you uh, you have the <laughs> urge to reproduce, which is nature's or life's way of uh, persisting in the business of keeping life going, which is not is not human karma either. That's also a general biological thing that goes for all living beings. Right? It's not just human. You know, as Noel Coward sang it so well, birds do it, bees do it, even birdies in the trees do it, and so on and so forth. Well, this is uh, not a human thing. It's it's a general, you know, order for everything in the, in the world of the living. I can't think of anything else that is basic. And those two things are not strictly human. Doesn't some of his daily choice um, to a point at least comes between whether he feeds or hunts or works in a grocery store or however he earns that bread? Well, you, uh, the, the joke is that, of course, all of us overdo it. In other words, we, we, we don't live in terms of, you might say, necessity and freedom. But we, we burden ourselves in 10,000 different ways, unconsciously, because we think that this is right and that's right and the other thing's right, and so we do everything that's right, blah, blah, blah. But we, we, have, these, we have these basic requirements that we have to fulfill, and as I say, they're not just human requirements, they're biological requirements. If we're going to live on this level, we, we just have to do certain things. And if we're going to keep the race going, we are also given plenty of splendid urges to do that, too. So, but outside of these two urges, there isn't very much else. Preservation through sleep. Yeah, but the rest is strictly advertising. We can't live without sleep, either. That's our relief. Well, there, there, as far as, you know, as far as life is concerned and we're living beings and the the um, the biological level is an extremely high level of life expression and so if we live on that level we just have to go along with the rules that's all there is to it yeah i would like to ask um, about a story you have told of more than once but you have not told it for a long time but anyway i don't think i understand and it's a story about a friend of yours. I think she was an older woman or, or a woman anyway that you knew for many years who saved some money. And um, oh, yeah. as it turned out, it wasn't necessary that she did this. Well, I, I simply, this again was pointing out the way life, the way life works. Now, for instance, this friend of mine who is still a good friend of mine, during the Depression, which was a time when it was very hard to get any money at all, she uh, scrimped and saved um, and gave up a great deal in her family life to buy an annuity for her old age and, you know, for the 
for herself and for her husband and so on. It was a conservative thing to do, but it, it was a great cost. Well, as it turned out, after struggling along with this during the Depression, and she really gave up a lot and sacrificed a lot for it, all of a sudden, out of, you know, uh, the times and changes and business fortune and so on. So her husband, who'd always been sort of a millstone around her neck, made a mint in the shoe business. He'd been working at it for years, and he finally clicked. And he he was the one who promoted the well-known moccasin-type shoe. And, uh, he, you know, he, he was doing extremely well with that. Well, this was fine, and she kept the annuity and so on and so forth. And then her husband died. And her next-door neighbor, who was a millionaire, came over to her and said, Look, Francis, you know, I've always thought you were kind of a nifty <laughs> gal. Let's get hitched. And uh, she thought about it a while. And, you know, she's been married a long time, probably used to having to mail around the house or something. I don't know what her reasons were. And it, it certainly wasn't money because she had money. But anyhow, uh, she married this guy who was a real nice fellow. I met him after a while. And when she came out here the last time and spoke to her, she said, you know, um, it's really kind of pathetic because I now have so much money, I don't know what to do with myself. She said, you know, I, I can't raise my hand. There are servants all over the place. They're all falling all over themselves to, uh, to wait on me and, and do this and that and the other thing for me. So uh, one of our members here in the group said, well, obviously, the reason that she uh, came into all this money was because she was so uh, careful in the beginning. You know, this, uh, in other words, the fact that she saved her money in the beginning was what uh, brought on all the millions. And, um, I mean, I simply put that forth as uh, part of the general uh, ridiculous notions that are floating around. That had nothing to do with it at all. But I know loads of misers who've saved their money all their lives and and uh, never made you know uh, anything out of it at all. They died. They started in with being a miser and they ended as a miser, and they left all their money to the church. They weren't quite thrifty enough. <laughs> that was it, I suppose. Well, I have that. That story has stuck in my mind for a long time. I don't think you've told it for maybe a year. And I That's think pretty we, good for me. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it didn't impress me when you told it last week. But anyway, <laughs> um, I think that I have. I think that I'm confused about that story because I have. I have. I have two. I have a feeling about that story, and. Uh, one, the feeling I have about that story is similar to what that person told you, but you know, one way of looking at it, and maybe it's not, maybe it's wrong or not the right way to look at the story, because she overdid what she was doing. She was trying to possess something or hold on, or but anyway, one thing I was thinking about was, you know, when you do start a magical process, if you want to call it that, you know, you start the ball rolling on however small a scale it is it has a tendency to uh, accumulate momentum and could very well end up being uh, incredibly multiplied, say, by a million times. I mean, oh, you start yeah. saving a few pennies, yeah. you end up a millionaire. I mean, 
such is the nature of things that you do, really. But I I, my point is entirely different, Mike. I, uh, if you want to discuss the magic of making money with me anytime, I'll be very glad to tell any one of you how to make a million dollars. That's very simple. That's very simple. It's just exactly as you've described it. In other words, all that you have to do is to concern yourself with making money and use your head about it. You don't have to break any laws or anything else, and very soon you'll have a million dollars. But there's only one catch, and that is that you mustn't uh, involve yourself in anything else. In other words, you must not involve yourself with, we'll say, humanity or feelings or anything of that sort. You must concentrate on the money in order to make this magic work. And then any damn fool can, uh, can make it work. You see, for instance, uh, in my own life, I've made, uh, oh, I figured it out sometimes, I've probably made in, uh, oh, what is it, 40 years or so, uh, maybe a half a million dollars. I don't have any money, but I've made a half a million dollars. You see what I mean? Now, uh, if I'd concentrated on making money, I would have had a million dollars or maybe ten million dollars or something like that. But I didn't concentrate on making money. I spent a certain amount of time on it, but I mean, I didn't really concentrate on it. I might also be in jail, but uh, that's... Uh, that's par for the course too. Now, what I was trying to uh, what I was trying to explain to you is, is is something else that's entirely different. I was trying to explain the um, the ability of life itself to intervene in really remarkable ways and bring uh, all sorts of things into a person's life picture that weren't there, that were not there before. And sometimes it's money, sometimes it's something else. But in my own family, uh, I saw in my, in the instance, particularly in my mother's case, I saw things come to her from the outside, which I've always felt was a, a kind of a reaction to her own generosity. She was an extremely generous woman. And when she was, when the chips were down with my mother, this miraculous help arrived, believe me. And uh, it wasn't small. I mean, it wasn't $5 or $100. I'm talking about a lot of money that came to her through people who discussed her plight with other people. My mother had nothing to do with it at all. And they said, well, now, you know how generous Gertrude is. Don't you think it would be a nice thing if, uh, now that she needs some help, if somebody gave her some help and somebody else arranged the whole thing? That's what I'm talking about, that sort of thing, which is something that, you know, is not planned. It isn't uh, your own personal magic, because the magic works, no question about it. But there's also another magic that works, that's what I. That, yes. That's really what I was talking about. Yes. Well, I was wondering in the case of the woman that scrimped so hard. Actually, she was uh, uh, building on lack and and worried for the future. She wasn't building on the seed of, of plenty, was she? She was afraid. Right. Even at the time, even though she was a very a very fine and and good friend to 
my wife and myself, and uh, and quite generous with her home and everything else. I always felt that she was making an unnecessary sacrifice at a time, you might say, when she needed the money more than any any other time when she was raising her family. This is when you need money most, you know, if you've got kids. Uh, uh, you want it then, you don't want it uh, later on. So that it, it seemed to me that, you know, she was perhaps ultra-conservative. But that the point of the thing that I was trying to make was that things that happen from the outside are, are much more significant than you can imagine. I mean, uh, you can do something unconsciously uh, we'll say, in a social situation or in a business situation, and all of a sudden that can turn around and bring you all sorts of rewards that you never dreamed of without your doing anything about it. You can be very, very conniving and careful and sharp and everything else and have a hell of a hard time making it. This is what I'm talking about. I've had the experience. I mean, I. I have I've done a small thing and I I have gotten an immense reward for it and it was strictly unconscious what I was doing you know and it's come back to me uh, in a very very big way and there was no thought in my mind that well you know this might be a smart thing to do I mean there's this guy he's kind of a wheel you know maybe I ought to butter him up or something you know? that's what I'm talking about the keys are not, you know, it's like, sure, there's a lot of gold in the ground. And you may find it. You know, if you're a prospector, you may find it. You want to be a prospector? You may be the, you, you may be the one, you know, that's, who's going to find it. $165 an ounce. Yeah. But if you if you depend on if you depend on we'll say the principles that are here, you can be more you can be freer, you can be, you know, more liberal in your attitudes and still make it very well is what I'm getting at. There's a famous story in uh, in in business there was this fellow who uh, invested in everything, you know. Guy come along and say, I need $5,000 or I need $100 or I need whatever. And this guy always said, sure, I'll invest in it, you know. <laughs> well, uh, the funny part of it was that he made millions out of this because what he was doing essentially was grub staking all these people without even knowing it. And most people are honest. They're not dishonest. And a lot of the people who came to him were honest. And the ones who said, you know, if it works, you'll get your share. They gave him his share. See, in grub staking, uh, you, if you grub stake a, a prospector, you get half. You give him beans and uh, burrow and uh, powder or whatever he needs, and he goes out and looks around. If he finds anything, you get half of it, and he gets half. Well, that's what this guy was doing. He was grub-staking people in business. And he wasn't too discriminating about it. He said, okay, you know, oh, you want a thousand, five, whatever. You know, as long as he had it, he'd keep dishing it out. Well, all of a sudden, it started to come back to him. 
and an idea, an idea can come to you, which, I mean, if you're in business, you can have one idea, at, as far as the times are concerned, that will make you rich. Just one idea, at the right time. In other words, if you know what to do at the right time with what you have, you can get rich this way. This friend of mine, who was a, a family benefactor, he was a self-made man who had a lathe factory, which he owned free and clear out in Michigan. And uh, his biggest customer was General Motors. And he, well, his entire production went to General Motors. He made a very good lathe and, uh, and they were well satisfied and he was right there and uh, he was terrific, the service and everything was terrific. So he had, you know, it was like this, everybody was happy. And uh, it was just a, a marriage of convenience and everything else. Well, during the depression, General Motors started, the stock started to take a dive, you know. And even though it's incredible, it went to eight, eight dollars a share. Well, our friend and benefactor thought about that for a while and he got an idea. Now he said, if General Motors goes down the drain, I go down the drain. So I might just as well uh, get on the tail of the kite. You know, if they're going down, I might as well go down with them. So instead of just being um, in the lathe business, he said, I'm going into General Motors. He says, I'm going to join them. You know, we'll all go down together. So as I explained to you, he owned his plant free and clear. So he went to New York and he went to Guarantee Trust Company, who were his bankers. And he said, now look, you know, me for years, blah, blah, blah. He said, no, I want to hock this plant for all that it's, I possibly can get. And he got a few million dollars for this plan in the bottom of the depression because that's the way it was in the depression you could still get mortgages and so on and so forth you might not get as much as you could at other times but you got a hunk of money so he got a few million dollars together and he went out and he bought general motors at eight oh, and before very long he was getting paid eight dollars a year in dividends on his investment of $8. In other words, he paid $8, he's getting $8 in dividends. The stock came back, and here comes the money, like this. You know. Well, he was a very generous man, and he gave the money away. You know. He gave it away? He gave it away. He built hospitals and this and that and the other. And of course, he also had a pretty good time on the side. But, <laughs> but he, he literally, he just gave millions of dollars away. Nobody ever heard of this guy, but I heard of him because he'd been very good to my family. And the, the point I'm trying to make is that if he had not had the idea about his relationship to General Motors, he never would have become so wealthy. He was always a wealthy man, but he would never become super rich, which he wound up as being, you know, he had this enormous income. And he just had to think all the time what to do. <laughs> and that's what I meant by the idea. So uh, we have to be a little bit flexible with our, you know, with our thoughts. Senor. That time here, let's uh, take a quick look at.
the Hierophant. The Hierophant's a nail, and of course we mentioned last week, I guess you were talking about nails, but they have a connecting tendency, and, and someone else here was talking about connections uh, in the Hierophant and connecting up all things. So uh, this is, you might say, the connection between the outside and the innermost in everything. It goes all the way from here, all the way up to the top. Uh, this is the nature of the nail. And um, of course there are all sorts of other fascinating things about it, but it is the connecting link. And uh, as you might expect, it's not the intellectual aspect alone which is involved in this because your intuition whereas it has an intellectual aspect it also has a feeling aspect which gives it its authority in other words if it was simply an intellectual thing it wouldn't have any authority as far as we're concerned but as long as we have a strong feeling about it it carries weight uh, not Arthur Edward I'm getting back to puns but uh, it uh, as far as our own inner feeling goes, it it can lead us and guide us. Um, I won't say that all love affairs work out well, but I think that they work out better uh, than affairs that don't have any love in them, if you know what I mean. If there's a lot of love involved, uh, of, we'll say, fair to middling quality, the situation is is likely to be better than if it's an intellectual proposition. Uh, the relationship between the male and the female is what I'm talking about. And this uh, is rather typical of how we move along in the path. In other words, sure, we have intellectual notions about it, but we also have very strong feelings about it. And these feelings are extremely important because uh, uh, they're supportive, and uh, as we find out as we go along, uh, nobody is playing games with us, really, on the path. It isn't that kind of a thing at all. Uh, I'm sure I wouldn't be here. If I were, I'd tell you that it was a, a pretty bad deal, and to go home as soon as possible and take an aspirin and forget the whole thing, but it isn't. I've never felt, since I started in with the tarot, or even earlier, I've never felt that I was cheated or um, led astray in any of these particular departments that we're working in. So uh, that's a testimonial as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I've found that this feeling part, uh, which is very much part of the intuition, is, is something that uh, we can cultivate and uh, and uh, you might say almost learn to to use uh, quite as well as the intellectual guidance system, you know, and all the telemetry that there is in this particular scheme that we have here. And there's plenty of that, you know. But that leaves us cold, and we don't want to be cold. Uh, we need to be warmed up from the inside, and so uh, this, this is part of what the Hierophant uh, 
uh, involves us in. We, we won't just find that it's uh, some guy telling us to do this or that, and these are the words, and look, buddy, you better do it or else. It's not that sort of thing at all. It's rather that we not only get the word, but we also have a strong inclination to do it, uh, meaning that we feel like doing it. And uh, as we've said many times, if we don't feel like doing it, we're not going to do it. And the only reason that we make any advances uh, at all is because that we feel like making the advances. And that, again, involves us right smack dab with our desire nature, which is uh, the engine, you know, in, in everything that we do. And the desire nature, it, it only operates in terms of feeling. It doesn't operate in terms of two and two equals four, as you probably figured out long before now. So that in this, in this area uh, of the Hierophant, you may expect um, not just, you know, not just the word, the printed word or the spoken word, but you, you can expect to get the same kind of thing from it that you would get from a good piece of music, you know. You get an emotional uh, uh, sort of aura around the thing, which is either attractive or unattractive. And if it's attractive, you buy it, and if it is unattractive, you don't. But in any case, I'm sure that uh, you'll find this is, uh, a, is a very interesting area in yourself. And once you become hooked on, uh, on what this means in Kabbalistic terms, you, uh, you might say all of your outside reading will be strictly outside, and your inside reading will be strictly inside, and you won't be confused about which is which. <laughs> what you can learn from inside of yourself is uh, uh, a completely different thing from what you can learn on the outside, and you will, uh, you will cultivate both, but you'll know the difference. So, have a good week, and as always, Thank you very much for making my Thursdays a success. Thank you. Without you, it just wouldn't be the same, I'll tell you. <laughs>